Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Exactly. Something like three hours, no phones, sitting in a circle where you can see everyone's eyeballs and you can connect with each man and understand where they're coming from. But if we take it back to the tribal example, 10,000 years ago, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Eaten by a tiger? Exactly. How does that happen? You get kicked out of the tribe. Almost certain death. To not be with you. Because if it's not a saber-toothed tiger, it's, an, it's a rival tribe. You know, we grew together. You know, we were organized. When after a battle, we sat in a circle around a fire and we processed and we connected. That doesn't happen today. G'day, this is Brandon Clips and you're listening to the Tom Rowland Podcast. are those in your life that mean a tremendous amount to you. And sometimes you don't realize that until many, many years later, what an impact, what a small little legacy someone left on your life. Today's podcast is, is kind of about, about that a little bit. There was a gentleman in my life. He's 10 years older than me. He was friends with my sisters. He was, he was different, a little different than everybody else. Uh, growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I didn't know anyone that really was doing anything like what this guy was doing. This guy was going out and he was snow skiing, being a ski instructor. He was racing sailboats on the level of the America's Cup. He was doing things and traveling and going to places. And his, his sense of adventure was more than anyone else that I knew. And he exposed me to this sense of adventure, to this sense of optimism that you could do anything. You could make your life any way you wanted it to be. You didn't have to do what everybody else was doing. And you know what? I didn't realize how much that played a part in the way that my life eventually 
turned out until many, many years later. But that guy's name is Bill Clift. And Bill moved to Australia and just developed a wonderful life for himself there. And he has always had this this great sense of adventure and this great sense of optimism. And he was always just a real fun guy to be around. The last couple of years, I met his son, Brandon. And Brandon also was very impressive and has done some pretty cool stuff and has a very interesting story. So I had the opportunity to sit down with Brandon and learn all about what he's been up to. And uh, boy, the story is incredible. And for a 26-year-old, this guy has a tremendous amount of maturity and really a lot of insight on, on life. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you will too. Today's episode is brought to you by Waypoint TV. Waypoint TV, man, it's it's just growing every day. They have a tremendous social media following. You can find them on Instagram at waypointtv.boating, waypointtv.fishing. Go follow those accounts and you can um, see what's going on. They're good accounts to follow anyway. Then... There are all of the written articles on waypointtv.com, and the mainstay of Waypoint are the videos. Waypoint TV is a streaming video service available on pretty much every app, every device that there is, Apple TV, Roku, on and on and on down the line. Uh, If you have a device, chances are you can probably download the Waypoint app and watch all of the best hunting and fishing content for free right there on your device anytime you want. So check it out, waypointtv.com and follow them on social media, waypointtv.boating, waypointtv.fishing. Okay, onward to an awesome conversation with my friend, Brandon Clift. All right, Brandon, how you doing? Doing well, thank you, Tom. All right, I'm glad you could be good. My pleasure, my pleasure. Good deal. So you and I have... um, Mutual friends and family friends, and we have been friends with your father almost my entire life. So he eventually moves to Australia and comes back, what, I don't know, it was a few years ago, I guess. And then you came and and we all got to meet you, which was super cool. And since then, I've been following you on social media and just watching what you're doing, man. And, and you're, I see you're coming through town and I wanted to catch up with you and see... Uh, See what you're up to, because it seems like you're doing some really cool stuff. Honestly, the uh, the pleasure and the opportunity to do something like this is is really cool for me, because having spent the past six months just traveling kind of around the Americas, South America, now up in here, it's always good to know that there's family yeah. anywhere you go. I know, well, and, you have that. Yeah, big time, big time. And so, you know, having a connection to people like yourself has just been a blessing, a real blessing. And I love coming to Chattanooga. I love coming in here and working out with you and the other the other men. Yeah. And yeah, it's 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 a beautiful environment in this town, but also what you've created. So Yeah. Thank you. Well tell me what have you been doing? You've been traveling around to what started that travels. Yeah, so had a bit of a quarter life crisis. Uh, <laughs> in, uh, I'm, I'm past that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh mid twenty seventeen I I lost uh one of my businesses uh, took a humongous hit and it was very, a very tough time for me as a young entrepreneur, uh, nearly losing almost everything. And it really started to throw things into question for me of what I was actually spending my time on. 
And for a long time, my mentors and, and my parents were saying, Brandon, you know, you're 25, be a 25-year-old, have fun, go do things. And my mentality was, no, I'll do that when this is done. And, you know, I need, I'm not the kind of person that goes out and parties and, you know, drinks and that's not me. So what was this that was needing to be done? This. So basically, I, <laughs> my mentor put it this way. He said, he goes, go root, drink and drug and do what you need to do as a young man so that when you turn 40, you don't buy a Harley Davidson, cheat on your wife and go through the crisis then. Mm. He said, be a young kid now. Yeah. And he said, sell your business. You know, if it's for a loss, it doesn't matter. You'll have another, but go out and have fun. And he said, you'll never regret it. And it was hard. It was tough. I'd built my entire identity around my business. And what was your business? Uh, my business. So I had a gym on the Gold Coast okay. uh, in Australia that specialized specifically in people that had struggled with depression, anxiety, and that had never been to a gym before. So it was the only hole I could see in the market because we have probably the most flooded city in Australia with fitness professionals and it's also a area that's near and dear to my heart and so we created this beautiful family of people that want to get in shape but also be vulnerable in the process and yeah we all knew each other very well and so how did you how did you go down that road particularly did you have training in that or did you just see that this was a need there's a couple of things and i think there's many variables that play into that my upbringing was beautiful i had beautiful parents and you know they really worked their hardest to give me every opportunity possible but being raised as a, a young man in australia yeah i'm sure this is everywhere but australia has this real mentality around how boys need to be raised hmm. you know if a kid you say a young boy falls over skins his knee starts crying it's not uncommon to hear a dad say don't be a sissy get mm -hmm. up stop crying and be a man and that's not how my parents raised me but that's definitely going to a private or boys school in australia that's exactly what i got mm. was don't cry don't show emotions be tough if anyone tries to make you feel weak punch them you know get into fights prove that you're not weak a lot of that had, not to say that I was a perpetrator of that, that behavior um, growing up, it just put me in this kind of dichotomy as a young man of, okay, I'd need to, I guess, be a successful, make money, you know, drive a nice car, date the most attractive women. If anyone tries to tell me I'm not tough or try and make me look weak, I need to overpower them. There was this, yeah, there was this kind of dichotomy I was living in because that's not who I wanted to be. Mm. You know, I've always been an emotional person. I've always been someone who likes to connect with people and not do that through force. And I'd rather do that through mutual admiration. And so it was a very confusing upbringing for me because I had a dad who was saying, you know, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be emotional. Show your feelings. And so I'd go to school and go and show those <laughs> feelings and then get beaten up <laughs> in the process. And so um, it, it put me in a, in a, in a state of conflict mentally uh, as I became a young adult um, and then out of university and, and yeah, I had to learn some things the hard way. Uh, your dad is such a wonderful person. He is, I can see that that would be interesting as a transplant to Australia and, and seeing him in that, in that environment where that, what he's telling you is not generally accepted. And that's what he is. I mean, he, he's, he's the guy that was giving people hugs, you know, 30 years ago before the bro hug was, was 
you know, in fashion, you yeah. know, he, well, I don't shake hands. Give me a big hug. You know, I mean, yeah. he's just such a wonderful person. And, and, uh, that's interesting that that is such a, a, a different, you know, culture really there. And well, it's not, I mean, that culture exists here, mm-hmm. certainly, but what's different is that your dad was coming into that culture as a transplant telling you that, you know, this is okay and everything's fine. But as soon as you go out into the world, it's completely opposite, I guess, is what you're saying. Yes, and it's not just like the environment in school or what I learned from, you know, my sports coaches. Like this is, hap- it's on TV, mm. it's in movies, you know, what, who are the protagonists in movies, male-dominated kind of movies? You've got the, you know, brunette, crew-cut, doesn't show much emotion, solves things with his fists, doesn't do a lot of talking but does a lot of action. Mm. Like these are the role models we've been given growing up. Right, I think the only enthusiasm we get out of these pr- protagonists in these movies is yippee ki yay, <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. You know, usually we we're just given these models of men that you know don't talk about their feelings, don't talk about their problems. They just handle their business on their own. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of the issues are today with men's mental health. Is a lot of men uh, have this belief that if they're struggling with anything, they need to be a man, and that looks like taking that problem going to their cave with it and not coming out until they've figured it out. Or smashing it. Or smashing it, right. <laughs> exactly. Or, 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 you know, having all that um, hidden and repressed uh, dissatisfaction come out, you know, sideways through mind-altering substances or really difficult periods of life. And so I believe, uh, I guess the best way to, to, to coin it is emotional irresponsibility. Mm. And Australia, yes, it happens a lot, but you're right. I see it a lot here. I saw it a lot in South America. And uh, I believe that if we had more consciousness around this, we'd have less men taking their lives. So is that where, what led you into creating a business around this and, and bringing in fitness into this? Is that, I mean, you just, because of your experiences that you had, you just see, man, I could make a difference right here. Yeah, I think to get the motivation to do that, I think there has to be a myriad of experiences for that to occur. And for me personally, 2015 was a tough year, real tough year. You know, this is when I started to kind of move and shake in in, in my industry and what I was doing. And, and with that, I was taking all of my dark stuff with me. Mm. I thought I was rising to the top as a personal trainer and, and I was teaching at the time. And so I thought I was taking all, all the good stuff with me, not realizing that I was actually dragging all those shadows, uh, as I like to call them, with me as well. And they were really starting to come out a lot, especially if I'd have a couple of drinks or things like that. It was very hard to control my emotions. And basically I had a lot of things happen in a small period. I had my, my, my grandfather pass away. My uncle got diagnosed with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. My dog got poisoned uh, from snail poison. Uh, there was infidelity uh, in my relationship. And all these things happened at one time. And it caused me to snap into a, uh, a, a mini psychosis of sorts, you could say. Wow. And uh, there were panic attacks. And I remember getting behind the, you know, the wheel of my car and just driving down the road and going, well, that tree looks strong. That tree looks strong. Wow. Yeah, I could do something here. I could just end it all and something just came to me in, in one of those scary moments. It's quite interesting, actually. So uh, one night I, I, I had an argument with my, my, my missus, uh, my girlfriend at the time, and, and I found out some things that were pretty soul-crushing. And so 
I had a panic attack and I thought, oh yeah, now's a good time to get behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I got out and I just took off to get home as quickly as possible. And I was driving down this, uh, this road called the Sovereign Mile. It's this long road and they have these huge gum tree and palm trees along the way. And, and I just put my foot down and I knew the tree. And I just put my foot down and went, I'm, I'm going to do it now. It wasn't like one of those split second at the last second, turn the car away from the, the tree scenarios. It was probably the second I got to about maybe 100 mile. Uh, I took my foot off uh, the accelerator, put on the brakes, pulled over because a voice came into my head. And it was strange because it was my voice and it was as vivid as if I was sitting right next to me in the car. And what I heard was, nah, dude, man, before you knock on that door, you need to leave some form of impact on this world. And you've taken the very best life has had to offer up until now. It's time to give back. And it, it was weird how clear that was. And that is verbatim exactly what I heard. And so I drove home. I just fell into my bed and I cried for about 20 minutes straight. What I discovered later on as I've learned more about the male psyche and psychology and I've worked in men's mental health is that that 20 minutes of crying and everything that led up to that was a series or years of me repressing, hiding, and denying so much anguish and emotion because I was too afraid to be vulnerable and show those feelings or those emotions around my peers, Hmm. around my colleagues, around my staff, around my family. And so what happens is, and we learn this in, in, in psychology with men is, the more we repress, hide, and deny these feelings and emotions, they will always make their way out eventually. In one way, shape, or form, or it manifests in many different ways, I'm sure. Many different ways, but in my experience, uh, Tom, do you ever have those moments where you go, I told myself I would never do that again? Of course. Mm. It's a repetitive cycle. And so my question would be, what is the underlying shadow that's driving the bus that's causing those things to happen? And so it's a process of taking, uh, taking these parts of ourselves that we may be ashamed of and that we don't want to see, that we don't want to face, and we certainly don't want other people's to see. So we, we hide and repress those things. But it's a process of actually pulling them out and putting them right in front of us to say, I see you <laughs> and I know how you turn up. And so before I say that thing I always regret, before I do that thing that I always regret, I'm going to acknowledge you and understand that you are a part of me, you may never go away. But as long as I put you right in the forefront of my consciousness, you can't control my life the way you have been. Hmm. Because if I put that sucker behind me, and if I push that right behind me where I can't see it and I don't look at it, he's right next to my hamstrings. And anytime I take any strides in life, he's just going to go, cut. And so this process of identifying these shadows has been really powerful, especially working with other men, is we find a lot of men are really overcoming their plateaus in life because they're seeing the same trends and habits that are holding them back. They can actually acknowledge them as a part of themselves. Uh, who modeled it for them? Where did they learn it? You know, what environment was that? Did that kind of, let's say, call it a cancer? What, what environment did it grow in? And it's basically uh, the, the first stages of acknowledging and understanding that we as human beings are fallible. We're imperfect. We make a lot of mistakes, but we're too afraid to show it Hmm. on social media and, (laughs) you know, at the work Christmas party. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Now, this business that you had that was dealing with people that had never been to a gym before 
was it all men or was it men and women? It was majority women. <laughs> majority women. Because the, so, the women were saying, where have, these, where have these men been all our lives? <laughs> they wanted to be a part of it. The few men that we did have, they just wanted to be around that safe environment where they could be vulnerable with men and men could be vulnerable with them. Gotcha. So, now, is this the business that you lost in 2015? We lost a huge, um, yes, yes, yeah. And, and we lost a huge portion of it, um, but there was enough left to sell in mm-hmm. the end and, and kind of build back. Okay, and so then as you lose that and it sends you down a different path, I guess, and what, what happens after that? It was interesting. So upon going through that period, one thing I hadn't learned at that stage of business was to be able to remove emotions from the scenario and look at things objectively. I was taking all of it personally. Hmm. Uh, long story short, our subtenant was paying half our rent, very expensive location. He skipped on his contract and disappeared. No amount of legal action or suing was going to make it feasible for us to be able to cover that lease. And basically, yeah, we, the doors were closed. For me, it was really tough because I'd built all of my identity into this business. So I, I, it was like, to me, it was a personal attack and it put me in a bit of a tailspin and, and made me start to question what was important. Taking off uh, was just a, yeah, a matter of what my mentor said initially. Just go have fun. So that's where you are right now. It, you're just out having fun uh, after, this, after you went into this tailspin and you kind of write yourself and realize, I'm going to travel, I'm going to do all of these, these things that you're doing. Is that, and, and that leads you to today? Absolutely. Yeah, six okay. months since I, since I took off. Cool. Well, along the line, along the way, I mean, tell me about this Mankind Project because I know that I've, I've followed you, know, you on social media. I've seen you talk about this. Not familiar with it. I'd like. It looks really interesting. I want to know about it because your dad also is part of of this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I'll give it a premise. Um, up until the age of nine, I was terrified of my father. And <laughs> of your dad? Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is the exact response because we would go out, you know, to a, a social event with other families and other kids, and everyone would see this happy, jovial, exciting person. Because what dad was doing is what we call masking. He was putting on this happy persona uh, for the rest of the world to see. But the truth was he was battling some things, some demons. And we got to see the demons. Mm. He brought that stuff home and he would project that onto us. Just like many men, women, people do. It's just a human trait that we deal with as a society. However, one day there was a breaking point and, uh, you know, I saw a side of him that terrified me and and he saw that fear in me and it broke his heart. He didn't hit me or anything like that. It wasn't anything like that. I just saw a a degree of anger in him that I had never seen. That was a a breaking point where he just said, I need to do something about this. And so in 2002, he found the Mankind Project. Uh, He initiated through their rite of passage, the uh, the new warrior training. And that was from that moment on, he and I began to build our relationship. (laughs) And I'm happy to share that he's my best friend oh, today. Well, that's awesome. I love him dearly. Um, and we're very close. So w- when he finds this, what what does it look like when you find it? And I mean, you found it through him, right? But when somebody happens upon this, I mean, how are they going to happen upon this thing? Usually at a huge transitionary period of their life. I, I believe the Mankind Project turns up at times where men are facing ultimatums. We've had a lot of men 
do our initiation <laughs> because their wives have basically driven up and said, if you don't take him, I'm leaving him. <laughs> you know and we've had other men come up and say if I don't do this I'm going to lose my family and so we find a lot of men don't do the training voluntarily just because they want to take that one degree of extra growth because they usually end up getting 45 degrees of growth uh, mm. from that point it's, but it generally it's, it's men that are, are given an ultimatum or they, they realize that they need to quit making the same mistakes and start to take responsibility for their actions and the, impl- and the implications of their actions so, mm-hmm. so what, what is it exactly? Yep. So the Mankind Project is a non-profit men's organization that was created in the 80s uh, by, by three men that just basically decided that the pattern needed to break this toxic masculinity was growing at a ridiculous rate. You know, the yuppie era of the 80s, it was all who had the nicest car, who had the first cellular phone, you know, wank, 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 wank. And these men decided, look, we need to start bringing some authenticity and, and realness back to this world and in the male persona. And so they created this support group and it was designed to help create men become better men, better fathers, better husbands, you know, better citizens. And the whole premise around it is taking, creating accountability in life. So for men to be account, held accountable to their actions, responsibility, whether that's emotionally or whether that's just accepting responsibility for their actions and what needs to be done and ownership, you know, taking ownership for everything that happens in their world. So there's no blaming, no excuses and no denial. Mm. And so since its conception, we've initiated just about 70,000 men worldwide Wow, into this organization. Well, it doesn't seem to be anything that I really know about in the in the U.S. Is it over here? Yeah, it was founded in the U.S. Okay, MKPs uh, they do an incredible job with their facilitation, but they're only just starting to pick up the marketing side of things, and now they're really starting to make leaps and bounds in that realm. But usually, it was through word of mouth that you found out about it. Mm. So, well, tell me, what do you do like when when you find this and you? get dropped off by your wife that's about to leave you, what does it look like after that? So I can't go into uh, specifics um, okay. because we don't want men coming to these weekends with expectations. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> it's about coming in a clean slate. And so the whole, for me, I was quite afraid because I'm going to this thing where there's twice as many staff as there are initiates. <laughs> Because it's a lot of work to lead these. There's 48 processes. It varies in different countries, but in Australia, there's 48 processes in this weekend that all contributes to helping a man break open the layers. You could say like the classic onion analogy. Mm-hmm. But really, it's, it's about breaking down the mask, breaking down the persona, breaking down the ego, and helping men understand like if you're standing there naked, no money, no status, who are you at your core? And is that enough? Because whether you like it or not, you're with that person for the rest of your life. So how can we ensure that you are able to love that reflection, bet on that reflection, and start to do things differently in life? We look at it as you go up and you get given a chest of tools. It's not a fix. You get the chest of tools but you then go back to society and you have to learn to swing the hammer. Mm. There's no quick fixes in this. We have a common saying, the journey continues. It always continues. 
And so this work doesn't work for men that are looking for a quick fix. It just ain't going to happen. But if you're willing to understand that, you know, as a 55-year-old man, if you come to this weekend, you need to understand that there's 55 years of conditioning mm-hmm. and 55 years of habits to unravel and look at. And so there's a bit of levity there and there's going to be a bit of work involved to reverse some of those habits mm-hmm. and to start doing things differently in the world. So I hope I answered your question. Well, okay. So when you, it, it appears from the outside, just, just following you on social media that you went to this, it was profound in your life. And then you began to start working with this group as one of the people that leads, leads one of these. And is it just a weekend or is that how it starts as a weekend? And then there's, there's other things that follow or what? Absolutely. So th- there's, there's many ways to, to grow in the organization. One thing I love the most about it is it's accepting of all backgrounds. You can be gay, straight, black, white, atheist, Jewish, doesn't matter. If you want to be a better man, you're welcome. So there's no uh, preaching of a certain way of being because it's up to each individual man to create and discover their own mission and their own ethos. And so we're never going to tell a man how to, how to be. It's up to them to decide that. But to get back to, to your question, it's important to um, understand that that growth always continues. And so once you do a new warrior training, you know, you get a lot of tools, you you get a lot of answers, but there needs to be continual work. And so uh, we created these groups called the I group, which is called an integration group, meaning you've got the tools. You go back to your wife, you go back to your husband, you go back to, you know, your work and your kids. And it's going to take a bit of work to start to put these things into practice and put these things into play. And so each week you have an opportunity to sit in a circle with a bunch of other men and check in. How are you doing? How are you integrating? How can, I, how can we hold you accountable? Hmm. How can we uh, ensure that you have the support you need if your wife just isn't meeting you halfway? Because in a lot of cases, a lot of men have lost the trust and support of their significant others. And so that significant other might be going, okay, you did this weekend with these blokes. You seem to be more open. You seem to want to communicate more, but I don't know. I don't, I don't trust you just yet. Yeah. So there's some healing that needs to be done in that process, whether it's self-healing or whether it's healing with others. And so I group or integration group is a great opportunity for, great opportunity for men to have that accountability and support continually. Hmm. And so some, some uh, MKP groups are open to men that aren't initiated through the weekend. So I did it for eight months before I went and even went up on the mountain and did the training. Huh. And it's the first thing I went to after I had my uh, one of the I panic was one of, You did that before you even went to the to the weekend. Absolutely, deal. absolutely. For eight months because I was so skeptical. Hmm. So it sounds. I mean, I don't mean to this come off the wrong way, but it almost sounds a little. It's a little culty. Hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it sounds super culty. It I sounds get it. super culty. What's yeah. the difference between this and a cult? So with a cult, you know, there is only one way of being and you have to follow that, you know, that, uh, that way. Hmm. There's, there's no stepping outside the lines of that. And so you see like Jonestown or uh, other examples um, that you see like, especially like in the 70s out in the West, yeah, Western side of the US. They were preaching a way of being that was, that had no flexibility. With MKP, you can come, you can go. You can bring your uniqueness with you. You know, say you're a Mormon. Mm. You're more than welcome to sit in a circle. As long as you understand and respect that there are going to be other men in that circle that 
may think differently, hmm. may believe in different things, may have their own relationship with whoever their, you know, their high calling is. And so I think that's is what's, what distinguishes it from away from cults. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there are definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of partners <laughs> and significant others that, that have thrown the word out there because all of a sudden their manly plaid wearing lumberjack husband is now starting to talk about their emotions and they're uncomfortable with it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you have people that, that talk about cults and then you have, I mean, they, a lot of people say CrossFit's a cult. You know, because it, it does check a lot of boxes mm-hmm. on what a, what is a cult. You know, they they eat special food, they wear wear certain clothing, they talk with certain terms, they have like a, a the, the terms and they have their own language. Basically, they um, I mean, there's a lot of boxes that basically are checked off with this and with with CrossFit and with other things that that are not even fitness related Mm. that, but probably where it differs is that nobody is asking you to give your worldly possessions and nobody is asking you to, um, believe a certain, a certain way. But what it, what it looks like to me is that, I don't know. I see that a lot of people don't have a support group around them. Men, women, women tend to do a better job of it, I think, because they have their girlfriends and they go out and they do, they do these little fun things Mm. and they go out and they all go to dinner or whatever. Dudes sometimes do that, but not always. And for me, like this group of, of people that I exercise with has been remarkable in Mm. that way. And also the group of fishing guides that, that I call my friends. It's the same kind of deal. Like, you talk mm. often. Sometimes it's about working out or in the other case of the other group, sometimes it's about fishing. Mm. And then you get into, you know, other things about what's mm. going on in people's lives. But I think everybody needs a, a some sort of group that they belong to. Don't you? I believe did so. Did you have one before this? I thought I did. Yeah. I thought I did, but it was smoke and mirrors. Here's a typical conversation at a bar in Australia. Hey, mate, how you going? Oh, yeah, not too bad yourself. Oh, yeah, pretty good. Did you watch the footy on the weekend? Oh, yeah, yeah, not a bad match, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that is the extent of a conversation. Yeah. Then you might talk about the girls you slept with on the weekend. Then you might talk about, you know, the additions you did to your truck. Like, that's the depth of it. Mm. But how many people go up to someone and go, man, how are you? Like, how are you doing? Are you Okay. Those aren't conversations that I had, but I know through the CrossFit community, the depth of conversation goes a lot deeper because there is a trust and a safety that's built when you sweat with someone. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. There's, and especially when you're doing things that are, you know, inherently dangerous, squatting, you know, PR weights or whatever, and you're counting on that person behind you to be there for you. You can't see them. Yep. You don't know, are they checking their phone? You don't know what they're doing, but you're going to do this and you're going to get in a position to where likely you're going to need some help. Mm -hmm. And is he going to be there or not? Or two people on each either side of you. Mm -hmm. And I think that as you know, you are a part of, I mean, that's just a microcosm of the world. Like that's just a microcosm of your life is that you can't see these people and you're going to need them and you know, you're going to need them and you can't, you can't set a PR squat if you're looking over your shoulder. 
You can't. You're no. just not going to. You have to be 100% focused and know that these people are going to be there for you because they've always been there for you. And they understand how important this is. You understand how important this is. You're both on the same page. You're exactly, you're operating as one, a hive mind almost. And I think that through fitness and working out together in certain ways like that, like, I don't know if, I don't know if all fitness is like that, like all workouts are like that, but when you're doing something or maybe there's a team aspect to it or there's some sort of a way that, that you're coming together and then you're sweating and you're, there's also humor involved mm-hmm. that tends to bind people yeah. like none other. And it's the same thing with the special forces or boot camp mm-hmm. or, or uh, going to the military. That's what people say always is that, is that sweat and humor bind men like nothing else. And, uh, but I, I do, I, I do think that over the last 15 years of my life, having this group of people there has been such an incredible, um, enhancer to life, every aspect of it, because I have these friends and didn't always have that, but it sounds like that's kind of what you encountered with this deal. Well, you, absolutely. Well, you think about it this way, you know, speaking to that communalism, that communalistic environment like the military, you know, or, you know, your rugby team or your, your football team, your CrossFit, you know, box. What if there's a man who, for the first time in his life, wants to go speak to his father who abused him and to speak his truth to his father and share with his father that he wants to create a relationship with him, that he wants his father to have a relationship with his grandchildren, who does that man have behind him? And so what if there was a community of men that he could meet with every week or that he could call any time of the week that would be there for him regardless of the outcome, that will ask him the right questions and create a safe enough environment for him to actually even come to the place after 40 years of hurt and pain and and spite to finally turn around and say, well, you know what? Time to break this cycle because I want my kids to have a relationship with me and I want my kids to have a relationship with their grandfather. So... Can you get that from the person who's um, spotting you in your squat? Probably. But is that a specific environment that has been created for something like that? Mm. There was a reason why MKP was created and it was so that we could go back to sitting in a circle. (laughs) Think about how we've evolved as a species. Could we have done it individually? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not. I would, mm. As soon as you said, think about how we've evolved in a, as a species right after saying sitting in a circle, I'm thinking immediately, I'm thinking, well, there's a complete disconnect. Mm. There's a complete disconnect like never before in the world, which I think is one of the, one of the things about, you know, my profession is, is taking people fishing. And for a long time, you know, my entire job is getting on the boat with one other person and going in a place where cell phones don't work mm. and spending the entire day doing nothing but trying to make sure that that guy has a great time. And he's doing his best just to make sure that he's enjoying the day. And it's a really interesting situation and relationship because a lot of times that person that's on the front of the boat is CEO of a giant corporation mm-hmm. who never gets away from his phone who never gets away from someone wanting something. And for the first time in a long time, mm. the person that he's with wants nothing more from him than for him to have a good time. Not asking about money or advice or, or business or anything. In fact, 
it's funny, this kid didn't even ask me what I do for a living. Sometimes you can see them squirming because they want to tell you, dude, I'm the CEO of the second largest company that does this in the world. And, you know, that was my strategy for a long time. Mm. I never asked. I never asked. Mm -mm. And, you know, later, three or four years later, I'd find out that, wow, got somewhat of a big wig, you know, but it was, it was just funny like that. But that's the first thing I thought about was disconnect and, and how people thrive Mm. in a, in a situation where all of a sudden they are connected back to people. And then it could be as simple as just getting rid of the phone for a little bit. Exactly. Something like three hours, no phones, sitting in a circle where you can see everyone's eyeballs and you can connect with each man and understand where they're coming from. But if we take it back to the tribal example, 10,000 years ago, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Eaten by a tiger? Exactly. How does that happen? <laughs> you get kicked out of the tribe. Oh, yeah. Almost certain death to not be with you. Because if it's not a saber-toothed tiger, it's, an, it's a rival tribe. Mm. You know, we grew together. You know, we were organized. When After a battle, we sat in a circle around a fire and we processed and we connected. That doesn't happen today. And we see this in, I've worked with many returning servicemen. We see this a lot when men return, men and women return home from the services and they lose that sense of identity. Mm. They lose that communalistic environment and all of a sudden they're home and no one's depending on them to protect them and save their life. And this, there's this becomes this conflict between, well, if I'm not doing this thing that I've grown with and been through all this, I think especially talking about like the CrossFit example, when you go through, when you test your limits with people and you go through incredibly difficult, strenuous forms of resistance, you do build that, that bond in that mm-hmm. community. And mm-hmm. I think it's important for every single human being on this planet to feel like they're significant, that they're worthy, and that they're able to connect with those around them through more than just a Facebook post. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. And, and so this group has had, obviously had that impact on you and had that impact on your dad mm. and lots and lots of other people. Um, but when we first sat down, um, I mentioned something about exercise and you said that exercise saved your life. Mm. What, where does that come from? What does that mean? So if we go back to 2015, I have this little uh, epiphany, a wake-up call. I was really trying to identify like what was the missing link for me because I wasn't asking for help because as a man, men don't ask for help. They figure it out on their own. That's very much the, the system I was running. I identified that my confidence was really low, really low. Hmm. And then I thought, well, what could I do for my confidence? And I thought, I know, I'm going to, do the most ridiculous thing I can think of and sign up for a fitness competition five months from now and start training. Because I read something somewhere that the best way to get out of your head is to get into your body. Mm. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start training. At this stage, I'm five years since retiring as a competitive gymnast. So I was 10 kilos heavier than I was at competing weight, very unhealthy, drinking, all that good stuff. And I just started training. And I gave myself something to focus on. And so I signed up for a fitness modeling competition, which I thought (laughs) couldn't have been more uncomfortable for me to stand up in a Speedo to essentially be attractive for people (laughs) to judge me 
when I thought about that, I wanted to vomit. And so I thought, okay, I'll choose that then. Yeah, <laughs> the most uncomfortable thing you can think of. The most uncomfortable thing. And so one thing, I basically treated my, my depression, uh, the triggers that came with that depression as a sign to either go cook something healthy or go exercise. And it saved my life because, you know, that, that wake-up call, it wasn't a cure. It wasn't a fix. It was just a huge change of direction, a huge 180. And again, those habits that are created over years, you know, the training became a huge catalyst for me to learn what it's like to, to actually truly feel resistance, to, to truly feel what it's like to, you know, be 5% body fat. Hmm. And you say to truly feel resistance. Mm. What do you mean resistance? So what I mean by resistance is to basically put myself in a pressure cooker that wasn't just my brain. Hmm. My brain was definitely throwing resistance my way, yeah. but that was it. And so I wanted to test myself physically because something that I always remembered from one of my uh, a sports psychologists I was seeing when I was a gymnast, as he got to know me, he said, Brandon, you're the kind of person that wherever your physical stress is, your emotional is just below it, hmm. like just below because when I was training like for the Australian team in gymnastics, I was so emotional. <laughs> you know, I'd like stick a landing and start crying or, you know, I'd mess up something in training and get angry. And he said, you're an emotional person. And so your training is a huge catalyst to gauging with your emotions. And so I started using my training as a catalyst to start facing my shadows, facing my emotions. And so say I have a day where I feel absolutely useless and, and unworthy of anything that I have or what's around me, I'd go into the gym and try and prove it wrong. Mm. Kill yourself in the gym. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I think if we look at like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, I think there was a series of, you know, deaths that needed to happen so there could be a rebirth, right? Uh, and speaking of the men's work and speaking of kind of these communities and tribes that I believe are more necessary today, I want to ask you a question, Tom. Where are the rites of passages in today's society? Well, I think that they can be self-installed. I think that you can, you can have rites of passage that you create for yourself. I think that in our world of, uh, of hunting and fishing, there are uh, traditional rites of passage. When you kill your first deer, when you go hunting for your first time, when you are able to hunt or fish by yourself for the first time, when you catch your first fish, when, you, when you're able to handle the fillet knife yourself, when you're able to do all of these things that come with this responsibility that is based upon this experience that you've had. That's why I feel so strongly about hunting and fishing as a, as a, a tradition that is passed on because it's way more than catching a fish or, or killing a deer. It's way more than that. And when you look at it in regard to what you just said, you can see this stair-step approach of, of, of dozens of rites of passage that are passed on to a young man or a, or, or a young girl that each one is a stair-step to further responsibility. Like, you don't just hand a, an eight-year-old a fillet knife and tell him to cut a fish open until, you know, they've had experience with with other things, and then they they can they've cut bait with with the knife, and then they've cut this with the knife, and they've cut 
the next thing with the knife. And there's this stair step approach of, okay, now you're going to get your own fillet knife and you're going to be able to do this yourself because you've watched me do it a hundred times before. And I've shown you and kind of guided your hand. Now it's time for you to do this yourself. And that is a very simple rite of passage, but it, it stair steps up to, okay, now you can hunt by yourself with a loaded gun. You have, I mean, lots of things can go wrong. You're going to drive there yourself. You're going to open the gate yourself. You're going to close the gate. You are in charge of of your destiny. And you are, for the first time today, you're going hunting by yourself. Well, that is never going to happen in a responsible household unless there have been countless dozens of rites of passage that have led to that. And and then everybody's okay with it. And you are teaching that person not only to be a full-grown, responsible man or woman, but you're also teaching them the skills that are necessary to do this small task, which we're calling a rite of passage. So I think that their rite of passage is still quite evident in our community, and especially in the, in the one that we're speaking to now in the hunting and fishing world. But a lot of the rites of passage have, have disappeared in the general society, there's no question about it. A rite of passage used to be that, um, you know, the, the, the young warrior would have to spend the night out away from the tribe, you know, and you certainly don't see that happening anymore. A rite of passage now is going to college, I guess, maybe, you know, but, but that comes with so much support and so much, so much, uh, cushion and ways that you can, you can, you know, phone, phone a friend or phone home and everything will be taken care of. When, when some of the rites of passage that I talk about that are self-installed, like my son is going to go to, um, we're looking for this for him. Like what is a rite of passage for him? And he's already done all this hunting and fishing and all that stuff, but what is the next step? And so we chose a Knowles course, National Outdoor Leadership School. He's going to go to this summer, and it's going to be uh, sea kayaking and backpacking. And he's going to then stair-step his skills up again in these small rites of passage, which will lead to like two days on his own completely. And, you know, map and compass and everything. And you've got to find the other, the rest of the group. And we're all going to meet at this one point. And then we're going to break up and we're going to do it again and again and again over until you are completely, you know, responsible and comfortable by yourself in the Alaskan wilderness. So those are self-imposed. But where are they as a as a society? I don't know. I don't, I mean... Where are they as a society? You, you've studied this way more than, than I have, but I do think that there still are some. And, and I think that, that a responsible parent that's trying to raise a kid that has, you know, you know, will find, will either find his own rites of passage and pass them down. Maybe it could be that, you know, now you know how to rebuild a carburetor. Now you know how to change a tire. Now you know how to do all of these things that, that, you know, a grown person should know how to do to, to operate in this world. But even that has, has gone away because you just pick up the phone and call AAA or you just do whatever. Most kids don't know how to change a tire. Most kids don't know how to um, start a fire. Most kids don't know that. And, and I don't know, where do you think it is? Well, you just showed me a, a side to um, the hunting culture that I never considered, which I think is really neat, is showing these kids responsibility. what it's like to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Responsibility for a knife, responsibility for a gun, responsibility for a property that you've entered. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool because and it's then showing- also one step further is responsibility to the animal that you are 
that you are pursuing, you have the responsibility to practice over and over and over and over and over again so that when you do pull that trigger and you do decide that this is the one that you're going to take, that, you know, you're, it's going to be a clean kill because if you're terrible and you blow the back leg off and now you track it for, you know, a long time and it's really dirty and, and when you get there, that, that animal is still alive that is not a good experience for anyone. It's certainly not a good experience for the deer. It's been a terrible experience for a young kid. And then that, but, but you can, you can, you know, go around all of that by, you know, just explaining that, look, this is not what we want to do. We want to go and we want to kill this animal. We have a, we have an obligation to this animal. And then you start bringing in this whole, um, culture of respect of of the of the game that you're that you're trying to kill you're going to eat every piece of it we're going to practice over and over and over and over and over again to be a responsible hunter and a responsible hunter is not just somebody that knows what their target is and what's behind it so you're not going to kill another person but you're going to make sure that everything about whatever you're using if it's a bow then you are dialed in perfectly and you're not going to shoot further than you're comfortable with. You're going to have to get within this cushion of of where your bow is perfectly sighted in and you know it's going to be a clean kill every time or a gun and you're going to have to go to the range and you're going to have to know that at 200 yards you can hit this. At 300 yards, you're horrible. Don't even try. Maybe it's 500 yards. Maybe it's 100 yards. But that responsibility too is I think is something that's passed on Sounds like a beautiful vessel for it can be yeah for, it can be for, for a young man or woman to to really get to know themselves because I believe to to me it sounds like there's a degree of uh, mindfulness involved in in every process and it's up to that individual being able to execute each of those steps and to see that the hard work and training is gonna you know gonna turn up in the in the end result right a clean, yeah. a clean kill you know the biggest. I don't know, point buck that they've ever shot or whatever that means. And I think to answer your question of where I think the right of, rights of passages are today, I would say that largely in, in common culture, there aren't many. I think the way we see it turn up today in society is pledging a fraternity or a sorority. It's uh, spring break. It's getting laid for the first time. It's It's been positioned around these, these vain concepts. Uh, and I'm not trying to downplay the Greek system, but I'm just talking about how, you know, you look at the values that are placed upon young manhood. Nowadays, it's, it's like, man, you got to get with that girl at the bar. If you're not, you're a, you know what? I believe it, it doesn't create a sound foundation for young boys to become men because we look at the whole premise of a rite of passage. Look at the Australian Aborigines. Mm. When, a young, when a young boy is 11 or 12, they get sent out on what's called walkabout. And for not just a night, they're gone for days in the wilderness mm-hmm. on their own. They have to craft their own spear, hunt their own game, build their own fires, survive, and then come back. The whole idea of that is so the young boy can die so the man can emerge. Mm-hmm. And in Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, he talks about the death being one of the most important stages and phases in a man's development, in a person's development, so that they can reemerge. It's like Gandalf the Grey becoming Gandalf the White. It's so necessary. But what happens is when we don't have these rites of passages in, in, in society, we end up with little boys in grown man's skin mm-hmm. leading our countries, leading our companies, leading our organizations, leading our families. And so you have this little boy that can grow a beard, 
that has muscles, <laughs> that can throw a punch, that can drive a car, that can shoot a gun, trying to figure out how to be a man in life by projecting their internal frustrations by not feeling like a man onto everyone else around them. And so that's why I don't believe spring break or pledging a fraternity is adequate enough for a young boy to know what it's like to become a man. Losing your virginity doesn't make you a man. Mm -hmm. Starting a business doesn't make you a man. Shooting, you know, hunting and game and, and getting your first kill doesn't make you a man. What I believe makes someone a man is when they can look in the mirror and look themselves in the eyes and not flinch, not falter and say, I see you, I respect you. I love you and I understand that you are doing the best that you can as a man. And so that's where you feel like this group has has brought you and many others. And do you feel also that the end result is what you just described of looking looking yourself in the mirror? Do you believe that there are many other ways that you can get there besides this group? But 100%. Yeah. yeah. I'm of the firm belief that there's many ways to skin a cat and that MKP isn't the only way. I, what I believe in more than anything is about taking responsibility, mm. about acknowledging and understanding that things may need to change and doing something about it. And there are many incredible organizations out there that help men and support men. And and I, I firmly believe that if it's not MKP, it, there's something else. Right. And And – you know, somebody could find, somebody could find this, everything that we've just described and outlined, they could find it at a jujitsu studio or mm. they could find it at a CrossFit community. If you find the right one, if you find the right, the right, the right situation. And some people are finding it with their own parents and with their mm. own families mm. and with their own, but, but the end result is that, that someone grows up to Basically having no regrets, mm. basically being able to, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm hearing. And that's what I think of when I think about somebody that's very conf, confident, comfortable in their own skin, feels good about where they are in life. They can look themselves in the mirror and think, you know what? I've given it everything that I can do. I've made plenty of mistakes. I'm going to make plenty more, but I have seriously done my best to mm. be the best person that I can possibly be. And, you know, if I would be in support of any group that led more people to to feeling that way, because I know that a lot of people don't like that's for sure that a lot of people don't. A lot of people have regrets. A lot of people have, for whatever reason, maybe um, didn't follow through on their passion in life and then they they regret it for the rest of their life, right? Like they didn't give it everything they had. And I think that when you do, you have no regrets. You have no, no demons deep down inside. I mean, everybody's got demons deep inside for something and every, and it all manifests differently. I was going to ask you about when you were, when you were um, talking about training and when you would feel these shadows coming up, which is what you were, what you were describing is what I just described as demons. Mm. And then you would go directly towards training or eating healthy. So many people feel that exact same way and they go directly towards cigarettes mm. or alcohol or mm. meth or whatever, mm. or destructive behaviors in mm. some way, shape or form. So exercise and eating healthy is certainly a healthier way to go mm. about it. But do you ever think about that too? Like, mm. 
Is exercise, like, do you abuse exercise? Because sometimes I think I might, like, mm. I do the same thing you do. If I'm not feeling good, man, I will go and just blow it out in mm. the gym, you know, and, and feel like, okay, well, if I can do that, I can do anything, right? Mm. And, um, but it's interesting to think about, like, could you be overusing something that is generally considered healthy? Like, I know some people can because, like, some people will run and run and run and run and run. And then they, it'll just, it'll, you can destroy your life through good things. Like, all you want to do is run. And now your family doesn't want to be around you anymore because <laughs> you don't want to spend time with anybody. All you want to do is run. Right. You know, and I've seen that happen too. And, and I've seen it happen yeah. with the, you know, with people going into the CrossFit world. And now, now their family doesn't understand what's going on. And they, all they want to do is hang out at the gym. And then they, then they, their family goes down because they just went off. The deep end. I had some clients like that. Yeah. I, I, one man comes to mind and he, we could tell, he joined because he, there was definitely a, something that he was dissatisfied with in, within himself that he wanted to confront. But also I, I realized that he was using my gym as an escape hmm. from his partner because there were some conversations that he was terrified of having. And so rather than think about it or have those conversations, he'd come train with us. And the one thing that, because uh, I knew his partner, the one thing that she would uh, chat about and with what her frustrations were was that, that he was not taking the time to connect with her and, and, or feel safe enough to be able to do so. And I remember he was doing two a days. And I remember saying to him one day, I just said, I said, mate, what are you running from? Because <laughs> people would look at his actions and go, yes, he's on the up. He's doing everything possible to become a better man and do these things. But it wasn't so much that he was being pulled towards something positive. He was being pushed away mm. from something negative. Such a big difference, isn't mm. there? There's mm. such a big difference. When I learned that, that, that just the subtleties of positive and negative, mm. it changed my life completely because, you know, you can, you can just exactly, that was a perfect example of what you just said. But you could have another example of, of some, an athlete that wants beat everyone. Yeah. Or an athlete that wants to win. And wants to take his team with him, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, this guy hates to lose. This guy loves to win. It's a massive difference. Big time. The, the, the result might be the same. You win. You don't lose. The result's the exact same. But somehow, there is this massive difference. And I think it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you can see two lines that look almost par parallel and then they just start to to go away from one another. And then you look down a year later, now they're here. And a year later, they're just so much further away from the one tiny half a degree of difference. And over your lifetime, it just puts you in two completely different situations. But I, I didn't understand that for a long, long time, the difference between positive and negative. And I, I've read a lot of different books and got got that concept and i was like wow is that could that really be that simple that you either hate to lose or you love to win that isn't that the same thing and then i was like no that's not the same thing at all the guy that loves to win wants everybody to come with him the guy that hates to lose just wants to beat people down right just want to dominate you look at the longevity of athletes in sport, especially nowadays at the level that people are competing, injuries are just popping up left, right, and center. And 
I always, being in like the competitive space and like training down at the Australian Institute of Sport, you always watch the athlete that says, I'm going to prove them wrong. Mm. They're never in the game that long unless they have a paradigm shift because they spend all their time looking backwards at the negativity that they're moving away from. They're not watching where they're going rather than creating a vision for exactly where they want to go, what they want to manifest, how they want their life to look. They're looking at what they don't want versus going, well, what do I want to bring into my life? Hmm. And so I say to my clients and I say to the athletes that I've mentored and worked with, you know, at the beginning, look back, get stinky, get filthy, get Get angry, whatever you need to get you going, to get your butt off the couch to enact some form of change. But the second that explosion goes off and you start taking off in some form of direction, turn around and look where you're going. That's so interesting. How does somebody know when that is? How, does, how do you know as a trainer or somebody that, that you're seeing that all you're doing is, is trying to prove people wrong? All you're doing is, is trying to prove this. You're doing all the right things. Mm. You've you've lost thirty pounds. You're you've gotten stronger than you've ever been in your yeah. life. But now it's time to move ahead and 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 look for the things that you want rather than than destroying all the things mm. that you don't want. I take it. I just think, use examples of people I've worked with. I had one client. His dad was a professional athlete, and. Uh, then when he was young, he wasn't an athlete. He was more inclined to play video games. And his dad just used to project so much shame onto him because he wasn't a rugby player, mm. you know, because he wasn't, you know, a, a cricket player. And so he had, he came in with this mentality of, you know, F him, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to become this athlete. I'm going to do these things. Um, you know, his dad used to really like say some horrible things to him growing up. He was just a young athlete. He was only 17 years old. And he came to me and his, his mom came to me and they wanted me to work with him. And, he, and I said to him one day, because he was just really training hard, getting injured all the time because he kept pushing it to the next level. And I said, so you have this relationship with your father that you know, isn't positive. He goes, yeah. And I said, why do you want to spend all day thinking about him? Because you're going to be, you know, uh, I'm thinking of a, a quote that I heard, can't remember who from. If you spend too much time looking in the past, you'll, you'll stay there. Mm. <laughs> and so what's the point you already know why you don't want to be there you've already anchored enough frustration and anger to know that that's not the way that you want to live your life where you way the way you want your life to end up so get out of that place get out of that headspace if you you only touch a hot stove intentionally once right mm. I don't know. There's a lot of people that like to do things like that. <laughs> so, you know, as a little kid, you touch the stove yeah. and, and mom and dad go, oh, finally, this lesson we need to teach him. Never touch the stove, whether that comes in the form of a spank or a real tough lesson. Man, when you touch those things, you're pretty... Yeah. You, you will never more. intentionally put your hand on it. But I think the, the equivalent example or metaphor of someone who wants to live in that negative place, they're essentially standing on a stove and just putting their hand on the element. You can only do that for so long without losing direction. And to me, I just think of it this way. If you're looking backwards, you can't see where you're going forwards. Mm -hmm. And there's no clarity. It's hard to keep a vision on the straight and narrow. And so spend more time thinking about what you want. What are the things you want to bring into your life? Okay, your dad was a jerk. Well, how do you want to be as a father? And also, you know, you know what you don't want to do as a father. So why not think of what you want to be as a father, as a husband, as a business person, as a citizen? That's 
in my opinion, going to keep you in the game longer. Mm-hmm. How can Tom Brady spend so long in one of the toughest positions in the world? He's practically held together by tape. How can he keep doing that? Do you think he's looking backwards? Well, he was one that I was going to ask you about. I, I, I don't know. Because, because there, I, I mean, I tend to think that, that from the things that I've read and heard about Tom Brady, he is definitely someone who loves to win. Definitely someone who is looking for things that he wants and bringing them to him through hard work and determination. But also, I feel like possibly that that attitude makes his teammates want to die for him. But you do have other situations where people make it to the very highest levels. And you can just see it, man. They got this huge chip on their shoulder. They're proving it every time. And they will continue to prove it over and yeah. over and over again. And they will set the record and they yeah. will do this or they will do that. Yeah. But you, I don't know. You can, I can just see it much more clearly yeah. now than I, than I could a long time ago before it became clear to me that, you know what? That's not the way for me. Yeah. Maybe it is a way for other people. I don't know. Yeah. But it sure does seem a lot more comfortable and a lot more, um, well, I guess comfortable is, mm-hmm. is the way to describe it. It's a lot more comfortable to win mm-hmm. and bring your team with you. It's a yeah. lot more comfortable to be, be in pursuit of something that you want mm-hmm. rather than demolishing yeah, something or proving something wrong, yeah. proving someone wrong, or but yeah. but it's very powerful. I mean, both are very powerful. Yeah, they very they they really are. And like Absolutely. if you you know people can win some amazing things by proving people wrong, mm-hmm. but it, it's interesting. They mm-hmm. may never they may never grasp this concept yeah. because I don't know that I'm very good at at describing this concept because I've tried to describe it to a lot of people and I don't know that I've done a good job of it. You you know exactly what I'm talking about, the difference between positive and negative. But I don't know that I'm always good at like telling people that because I talk to some people and they're just like, hey, you win. Winning's winning, right? Like, I mean, they're both winning. Well, yeah, I guess. But I don't know. It's, 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 it's an interesting concept, but it's one that I, that I think about a lot because it had profound effects on me. And I was, I can see now that I was only going to go so far trying to prove people wrong. Mm. And I was only going to go so far with that particular attitude. Mm. When that attitude changed, it didn't happen immediately, but Mm. it did happen. And, and any success that I've had there Mm. from then to now has been a lot more than what I would have had if I had just kept trying to prove people wrong. Sounds like you were more focused on proving yourself right. And your, well, own, your think, own dreams and, and desires. I and, think that's how it maybe went eventually. Mm. But then think about all that energy that you're wasting when you're trying to prove people wrong, right? Throwing it out there. You're still you're still accomplishing like yeah. the, the overall goal that you had of mm. I'm gonna win this or I'm gonna achieve that or I'm gonna do this. But along the way there's a tremendous amount of energy wasted yeah. where Given, I think that giving away the best to yourself, in my opinion, yeah. when you're trying to prove others wrong, you're yeah. giving away your best energy and attention to people that, you know what, probably don't matter as much as they need to yeah. for you and where you're going. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Does, it, does that come up, the positive and negative thing in, the, in, in your group? Well, that's kind of something I've just used uh, in, in a big way. Um, 
in in my in my development personally and and with my athletes and with my clients and so but MKP is more about um, just creating an environment where you can walk away with those answers and so if if you come to me looking to overcome some scenario or situation that you're in for you to fully take ownership of the situation and for you to fully act upon what you discover I can't tell you what's wrong with you it's for you to discover it yourself when you can have your own aha moment you can take ownership for discovering the solution which is going to give you a hell of a lot more motivation to turn it around instead of me saying Tom this is your problem and you have to fix this because there may be a part of you that went, man, that fourth grade teacher that told me I had to do those <laughs> things and my dad always told me I should and I need to do all these things. If you can have your own aha moment, then you get to own the whole process. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a book, very popular right now, uh, Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willink. You like that one? I figured you would. Biggest read of 2016. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that that has been a great book. I, I, one of my favorites probably um, that I read recently you can take that like you are to any level. You can take it into your personal life. You can take it into your business life. You can take it into your own training. You can take it into whatever. But basically it says that, you know, you are responsible for basically everything. And it's not that your boss is is a jerk or he doesn't understand. If your boss doesn't understand, then you're a terrible leader. And you're like, well, when you're first reading the book, it's like, well, how, how am I going to lead my boss? And then there was this wonderful chapter in there that you lead up and down the chain. It is your responsibility. If your boss is making bad decisions and doesn't understand what you're trying to do, then you have to educate that boss in some way, shape, or form. You can't go in there and, and be like, hey, listen, you're a jackass and you don't understand, you know, but you, you can spend the time to, to teach them. And then, your boss will become your greatest ally and actually help to get whatever this challenge is that you're having pushed through because he didn't fully understand it at the time. So so leadership comes in the form of leading up to the superiors and down to the subordinates. And it is just such a, an incredible um, microcosm of life in the military because you just you have these very strict guidelines of who's in charge and who's second and who's third and who's fourth and who's fifth all the way down to someone who's absolutely at the bottom but i think that when what's interesting about that concept is that when you take ownership of whatever it is if this is your personal life or if this is your business life or if this is your training or if this is whatever it is and you take ownership of that there's a there's a great amount of control that you feel that you didn't feel before. Like if you're taking ownership of everything in your life, your emotions, the way that you're handling things, your reactions to things, and that's not somebody else's fault. That guy cut me off and you're all pissed in traffic. If then then you're just then you're just a rudderless boat getting or a ping pong ball getting ping ponged around, right? By by whatever forces there are in the world, as opposed to Man, that guy really made me mad, but I'm not going to let it bother me, and I'm going to keep on going on my day. And that, he's probably going to kill somebody if he keeps driving like that. So I'm going to slow down and just go about my business over here and not let that get get you upset. And and then there's this all of a sudden there's this control. You just feel like wow, I don't have to let all of that stuff dictate the way that I feel. I believe ownership is a, a gateway to humility. 
a true gateway to humility because first thing I like you understand your your uh, metaphor of like the rudderless boat if we're not taking ownership. You know, the example I've always always used has been, you know, you can get washed around in the big bad in the big bad waves of the world, or if you take ownership, you can plant a foot and pivot and be able to look at all your options. You know, my mentor always called it uh, ownership. Own the, you know what, <laughs> you know, and. If you take ownership, you then have an ability to do something about it. You then have an ability to change the situation. But if you're not taking ownership, you're living in denial. And I, what I love about you know Jocko Willink in that book is you know when uh, I think the example was there was uh, one of his one of his guys uh, tripped his boot, clipped something, and it gave away their position when they were in Ramadi. You know he tells himself, "I should have made him run more tires." <laughs> to learn to lift yeah. his feet more. And, and I think that's just a, a beautiful example where we take away the blame of that person because that guy might feel horrible, especially if it involves in, you know, a, you know, the death of a, a fellow troop or, you know, or something, you know, as bad as that. How about we create an environment where that guy can learn from that and he'll never trip on that step again. Right. You know, and it creates a more positive environment for change. And I believe the more ownership we take in life, the more capability we have to, to really practice humility. And if we take it further into like Jungian psychology, that's when you get to be a true king in your world and establish a kingdom when you can, you know, create, you know, be humble and take ownership. Gives you the best way to lead. So how old are you? Just turned 26. You turned 26. You're pretty wise for a 26-year-old. Thank you. I mean, and that probably comes from some negative experiences, I would mm. imagine. You're losing your business and you're doing all those things. But now you're now you're traveling. You're about to you're in the middle of a move like you're going to salt lake yeah yeah decided that i'm uh you know that i've enjoyed my little six month uh discovery trip and i've decided that salt lake city is going to be the uh the place to kind of set lay some roots and set up base it's Uh, interesting you talk about salt lake city because i was thinking when you mentioned rite of passage they still know rite of passage in salt lake city the mormons mm -hmm. like they you you get to whatever age and it's i think it's after college or or whatever and you got to go and do do the mission work Mm. and it's incredible i had a friend that um was a nfl quarterback Mm. mormon and he was really really high in the draft like he could have gone and he Mm. went and did that mission work because that is that's that's it what's what he has to do and there wasn't any i mean it's like you could be number one in the draft pick no, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm. And that's what he did. And he eventually made it back into the NFL. Very, very interesting mm. story there. But they know rite of passage mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely. They take it very, very seriously. But I think that yeah. that is, there, there still are lots of places where there are rites of passage. I think that when you look at the U.S., I mean, like there's still plenty of countries that, that demand military service. Mm-hmm. You Singapore. Know, and, right. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't hurt if we did. Everyone gives, you know, two or four years, mm. not necessarily for the protection of the country, but for the protection of our country's minds, probably mm. as much as anything. But anyway, tell me about your uh, your Salt Lake. What take what takes you there? Why why Salt Lake? Uh, so in my after following my mentor's advice to go root drink and drug, uh, I wasn't a week into my trip in Peru when I met the uh, my now girlfriend uh-huh. <laughs> there is <laughs> you'd think i failed my mission i didn't she hated me at first well, she didn't know she didn't hate me she thought i was a douche 
So <laughs> that gave me some time to, uh, and I don't, honestly, I don't even notice her because I just left everything that I knew and I was very like a scared, <laughs> scared young man in a new country. But, you know, I went off and did some discovery of myself, you know, went off to the Amazon and spent a lot of time alone in the jungle and really started to get to know the man in the mirror. And she didn't really notice me and I didn't really notice her until I learned. What were you on? Some sort of a a group trip or? Yeah. So basically I thought, you know, what's the closest thing to going backpacking um, and and kind of getting lost somewhere? I thought, well, there's this program called Remote Year where you can travel with other business, you know, entrepreneurs and, and workers that work from their laptops. You know, you travel around the world together. You all work on your laptops, but you can enjoy experiences together. Hmm. So I thought I didn't want to go completely solo in a country that I didn't speak the language. And yeah, I, I went with this group and she happened to be a part of it. And yeah, so, so Utah is where I'm going to basically set up bait, base. But again, I can work wherever I have a laptop hmm. and I, I intend to do a lot of traveling. So today. what are you working on now? So we have a, a mission right now. In the past year, I've had three mates take their lives. It's something near and dear to me because I was on that exact same path. You, you hear, I hear the same thing over and over whenever something like this happens. We never knew. We never knew it was going to happen. Mm. No one saw it coming. And so for me, I'm very public on social media and, and these guys knew that I worked in, with men and in, in, in around the men's mental health space. And my question is, why didn't they reach out? Now, do I take responsibility for their actions? Absolutely not. There's a clean line there. However, what can I do to help change the statistic? Men are four times more likely to take their lives than women. And so I want to turn that number around. And so I'm taking 10 of the top men in my program, which is called the Path of the Warrior, to Base Camp Everest. We're going to do the 10-day trek. Our mission is to put out a call to action for every single person on this planet that's lost someone to suicide to write them a letter, send us the letter, and we're going to carry every single one of those letters to the base camp. Then with permission, if we can get permission, we're going to do a ceremony and we're going to burn the letters. Not read them, just burn them and let them go. Almost in a way of just letting every bit of shame that that person might hang on to or hold, letting that go too. And so we have, uh, we have, we want to sponsor two men that are battling that may not have the means to be able to do it. We want to sponsor them entirely. And we also sponsor another gentleman whose only son took his life last year and he had, he did not see it coming. And so we want to sponsor him to be able to join us as well so that he can have that peace. And we want to do that in, uh, in April, May next year where we're getting there. There's still a lot of work to be done. I will, I will definitely admit that I am nervous and a bit out of my, I feel a little bit out of my depth at times with this mission, but we set the intention it's going to happen. And so that's what the next six months looks like for, hmm. for me and my career. All right. How many people work with you? Uh, I have two other coaches that work with me and uh, I've got a group of men. And everybody's remote. Uh, yeah, everyone's remote. So one more question before we go, because we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes. So you keep talking about this mentor. Who is this person? How did how does he fit into your he or she fit into your world? So his name's Larry Dawson. He's uh, seventy years young. He's gonna he's gonna kill me. I said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Larry uh, Larry brought the Mankind Project to Australia in the year two thousand, and uh, Larry's been working in relationship counselling for decades now, and and he's he's been a huge role model for me in life. Um, you know, I met him when I was nine years old when my dad did the New Warrior training. 
And he's known me my whole life. And, and so the beauty of, of my relationship with Larry is he understands how through generations we inherit a lot, not just biological DNA from our parents and our ancestors. We inherit you know, their conditioning, how their parents raised them. So he's had this unique opportunity to see me grow and for me to turn up to my I group, my integration group and, you know, do my work and share what's going on in my life and him just basically see my father in me. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's been beautiful to hold me accountable because, you know, one thing I love about my father is he's never half asked anything. He's given everything his, 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 his all, which has been an example for me to do the same. And so when I approach, you know, my demons, I'm not half-assing it. I'm whole-assing it. That's awesome. And so Larry's have been there every step. And when he found out I was in a relationship, <laughs> he, I won't swear, but he's like, you're doing it all wrong. You're supposed to be rooting, drinking and drugging. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sure he's happy for you. You know, when he you is. were talking about your dad and, and doing things all, all the way, when he was here, well, it was a couple of years ago, I guess, I showed him the, the Wim Hof breathing. <laughs> and so he would come first. And so the Wim Hof breathing is, it's been really important to me, but it's, I'm, all my friends haven't fully embraced it because it's weird as hell. It's so weird. You lay on the ground, you breathe super heavy. And so a couple of them started doing it for a while and then they were like, eh, I don't know. I just don't see as much into it as, as I do. I do it every single morning. Mm. And so your dad was like, uh, what are you doing? And I said, uh, lay down here and do it with me. This is, this is awesome. We breathe in 30 times and then you, you breathe all the way out, hold your breath as long as you can. Then breathe one big breath in, hold your breath and then wait for as long as you can. And then you do that again, three or four times. And then we're going to do it at the very end. We're going to do push-ups at the very end. So he grasped this right away. And on the first time, you know, you can see some weird stuff. It's almost like you're on drugs. I mean, yeah. you are really, really hallucinating sometimes. All kinds of stuff's going on. And so we're doing it side by side. And I have a, an 87-pound chocolate Labrador Retriever. And at, when we were doing this, it was in Tennessee. And so <laughs> this is the first and only time this has ever happened. And of course, it happens to your dad. We're doing <laughs> this breathing and I am deep in. I mean, I'm seeing crazy lights and all kinds of things. It's one of the best ones I've ever done. And I hear this, whoa, whoa, oh my God. <laughs> and my dog had killed a, uh, a, a possum. And he brought it and he put it right on your dad's stomach. <laughs> and and so your dad looks up and there is this dead possum. Well, he thinks it's dead. Yeah, yeah. And it is shitting all over him. <laughs> and my dog is just sitting there looking like, I don't know why he put it on your dad, though, oh, because we would think it would put it on me. But, I mean, you're, I hear this, you know, steps <laughs> and, and he walks around and then he comes back and he goes, only in Tennessee, mate. Only in, only Tennessee. in Tennessee. And so I'm still doing the breathing. I still don't even know what happened because I think I'm hallucinating this dream. <laughs> and I, I get up, I finally finish, and, and he's like, did you see the possum? And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he goes, your dog brought a possum over here. And there is possum shit everywhere. It was one of the funniest things that I, I mean, but I was so deeply into this that I didn't even open my eyes. 
Not one time. Well, here's something I want to share with you that you may not, uh, you probably don't know. And here's what I, just a highlight of the impact that you have on people, Tom. You taught my dad Wim Hof. I came and worked out with you in 2015. Right. I, I, you know, I, I tried it for the first time. I went back to Australia and I started a, a free boot camp back home just because I didn't, I hated doing cardio on my own. And I started doing the Wim Hof. I started trying it for myself. Next thing you know, I have 12 people with me every morning on the beach, watching the sunrise, doing Wim Hof in the middle of winter, going swimming in the surf. And I, you know, I was timing myself with the breaths as well. I ended up getting a three minute, 27 second hold on an exhale. Nice. But when I got that record, I was down right by the water on the rocks. There's a beautiful spot there um, in a place called Burley. And I'm, the guys are behind me doing their breath and I'm just so into it. You know, when you can't tell if you've inhaled or exhaled and I'm just breathing and I could, I could tell where every single seagull was in the sky without opening my eyes. I could tell exactly where they are because every time I opened my eyes, there they were right there. I could hear the surfers fins cutting the waves. I knew exactly if they were doing a kickback. I could do exactly where they were if the wave was barreling. What I couldn't tell, though, was a Yorkshire Terrier had come up to me, stood on my chest, and started licking the inside of my mouth. And my nose. I had no idea that was happening. So apparently, animals aren't a part of the uh, oneness of nature when you're doing the Wim Hof. Oh because, my gosh! Uh, your dad and I couldn't. None of it. Neither one of us could detect a, a possum either. Mm-mm. Well, I come to. I, I finish my breath and I come too, and I'm all I hear is laughing behind me. Because they watched this Yorkshire Terrier practically make out with me for about 10 seconds until the owner found out and freaked out. The dog jumps, launches off my chest. I had no clue. And I came over. I'm like, why are you laughing? And why does my face smell like dog food? (laughs) It's hilarious. It's powerful stuff, man. So thank you because, you know, that's how I started my business was I had 12 to 16 people come and join me on the beach for Wim Hof. And then I thought, oh, I might. I might open a gym nice from there so yeah nice it's pretty cool well you got a good story man and i uh, wish you all the best with your move to uh salt lake and this this whole everest deal is uh, i know it's going to be great yeah so yeah. thanks for sitting down talking to us Likewise, good stuff man. man yeah cool avenues it went in so many different directions yeah and it's just been it's been great connecting with you tommy all right thank you cheers mate good luck that was a great conversation brandon good luck to you and everything that you're doing and to your dad Man, Bill, you're dear to my heart. Thank you for the influence that you had on me and uh, given me the sense of adventure and given me a glimpse into being able to write your own ticket, man. Write your own story and make it a reality. All right, for you guys in the audience, I hope maybe this podcast has the same effect on you. Maybe it gives you a glimpse into being able to write your own story any way you want to and create anything in your life that you want to. That's what it's all about, whether that's being a hunting guide or a fishing guide or photographer or anything, finding something like what Brandon found and and giving back to the world in your own way. Anything's possible, man. And no one has to have done it before you. Just get out there and make it happen. All right. See you later.